you can go to a prison warden and say, how many people would you feel comfortable just letting out of your prison right now because they're no danger to anyone and should go home to their families? And they would give you a large number. People know. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Chloe Coburn, founder of Just Impact Advisors, a grant-making and donor advisory group devoted to creating cascading momentum for ending mass incarceration. Chloe pulls together funders interested in criminal justice reform and helps direct their money to innovative leaders working to make change on this front. Chloe previously worked at Dustin Moskowitz's Open Philanthropy, which provided seed money for Chloe's new group. I enjoyed getting to know Chloe and why she has made this effort her life focus. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Chloe Coburn at Just Impact Advisors. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Chloe, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Hello, and thanks for having me on. My name is Chloe Coburn. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I run an organization called Just Impact Advisors that really focuses on work to end mass incarceration, though we touch on some other things. We do four things. We advise donors. We try to provide educational material for donors work on strategy with folks in the field, and then run a fund. So that's what I'm doing these days. Where I come from is really a family of journalists. So I ask a lot of questions. Why is the world this way? And can we change it? My mom's from California. For many years, she was a 60 Minutes producer. My dad's from Ireland. He's currently with Harper's Magazine. My uncle, Alexander Coburn, was with The Nation for many years. My other uncle was with The London Independent. My grandfather was Claude Coburn, who was a well-known journalist in England. So it's deep in the family. And I really root myself there in that kind of family tradition. It's how I understand myself and why I do the work that I do. Really focused on being committed to fairness, having a duty to step in and step up to help. And I just love to take on big opponents and win. I saw that a lot growing up, and it was pretty inspiring. I also love to connect the dots, which I think is kind of a journalist thing. Different pieces of information, how do they fit together? How do we understand the deeper kind of underlying drivers of what's going on? I was born in London. I grew up in New York and D.C. I went to Georgetown Day School in D.C., which Justice Jackson in her confirmation hearings spoke of fondly, which was pretty cool. They really had a strong emphasis on racial justice values and principles and history. So that's really informed how I look at the world. Um, 
Fast forward, I studied classics and studio art at Harvard. After that, I moved to San Francisco and painted houses and edited application school essays, lived there for a couple of years, went to Burning Man, did all that stuff. Not yet sure at the time in my early 20s where it was all going. I moved to New York to paint, but the gallery world really wasn't for me. And my mother one day suggested law school, and I thought it was a pretty cool idea. It had never occurred to me before, but I had, of course, followed very closely the Iraq War the first one and the second one and the Patriot Act and thought, great, I can go and undo the Patriot Act. That was my goal. So I went to Harvard Law School. And when I got there, I became immediately much less interested in international law and much more interested in criminal law. I had Alan Dershowitz my first semester for Intro to Criminal Law. It was absolutely captivating. And I really was just so deeply struck by the unfairness and the erasure that was happening in the criminal justice system. So I knew I wanted to work on, on that topic somehow, thought maybe I'd be a law professor. Then I realized I wanted to be much more practical. So I spent my first summer in Jackson, Mississippi, working with a defense attorney there. Second summer at the Public Defender Service of D.C., various fellowships, landed at the ACLU in uh, 2012, right after Hurricane Sandy. And when I got to the ACLU campaign to end mass incarceration, as it was called at the time, my mission was to talk to all the ACLU affiliates and figure out what they were doing and what more they could be doing on work to end mass incarceration with a real focus on state legislative policy. So back then in 2012, people were just waking up to this issue in a bigger way. You know, the new Jim Crow was published in 2010. A lot of people read that book and were really struck by it. There was news coming out. It just started to enter the public consciousness in a bigger way than it happened before. And so there was a lot of learning that everyone had to do, including the advocates at the ACLU. So I spent two and a half years doing that. And really during that time, I realized how limited sole focus on policy would be to achieve a really big goal. You could be wildly successful and pass four bills in a, in a year, which is very successful in different states. And it would kind of not even really budge the issue, even an inch. So I thought, you know, we've got to think in a different way about how to take on this challenge. And while that was on my mind, um, in 2014, my boss, Benita Gupta, left to go ahead DOJ civil rights. I started looking for new digs and came across Open Philanthropy, which is a foundation primarily advising Dustin Moskovitz, who's a Facebook co-founder, and his wife, Carrie Tuna, on their giving. So I started there in the fall of 2015 in the world of philanthropy, which I hadn't thought or known very much about before. But I want to say before I started, there was a really important kind of thing that happened in my life, which is that I went to this training called Momentum with these folks, Carlos Saavedra, Paul Engler, and others that have since formed the INE Institute. And um, it was about mostly about organizing and history of movements and things, but they have this really striking kind of framework that I have carried with me around movement ecology and these kind of five key components that have to work together to make big change. The inside game where I had been working, really familiar with legal work, advocacy work, you know, get the big deciders to make different decisions. But then also the structure-based organizing, like labor and community organizing, mass movements, like Black Lives Matter, which 2014 and on, alternatives, you know, create, how do we create a different kind of world and personal transformation? And that sort of framework of different components working together to make change really inspired me and, and kind of drove how I thought about 
giving away all this money, where the real challenge when you're up against a big problem, even if you're giving away some tens of millions of dollars a year, you've still got to pick the right people doing the right things at the right time. And, and how do you figure that out? And the movement ecology was really informative to me on that. And then I'll just say, you know, the, the other thing I brought into the work that I've been doing for the past seven years in, in running this money is really thinking on a local level. The federal government, you know, really has top-down policy on a number of issues. Let's say immigration is an obvious one because it's around relationships with other countries. Criminal justice is really a local matter. It's um, There are obviously federal and state laws, but how the law actually plays out, how the money works, who the parties are, what they care about is really a local question. And so what's happening in the counties matters a lot. And I focused a lot of time and attention on thinking about that. And it's kind of an exciting, bubbling layer of our country that sometimes gets attention and sometimes doesn't. Um, it's fun because you get to innovate. There are amazing people to discover, things people don't know about yet. And then you can really look for and develop solutions to then try to build up and, and see if you can create momentum to perpetuate in more places. So that's a little bit about how I think and, and how I got to where I am and what I'm working on. It's a pretty full and busy career so far, isn't it? I mean, you know, uh, living my best life, trying to. Yeah. I, I, I guess I want to ask you just a couple questions about what you went over just out of curiosity. So what were you painting? Like when you were back in your paintings phase, were you working on painting that had to do with equity and social justice? What type of art? Not at all explicitly any of those themes. It's I'm an abstract painter and I have a website, chloecoburn.com, where you can see um, a bunch of paintings. And I just actually had a show last weekend in upstate New York, which was cool. Um, so the paintings are really are oil on canvas and they're, they're abstract kind of color fields. And what I often think about when making them is I think of them as a, in a way, a very abstract representation of the spaces between people, any sort of collection of people, there's a, a different thing. And I'm sure there's some philosophical term for this that gets created in the relationship between them. That's not specific to one or the other, but what happens when they come together. And so that's often on my mind when I think about making these paintings, but you don't need to know any of that. You just look at it and say, Oh, it's yellow and orange. That's cool. <laughs> well, I will definitely check it out. All of those elite reporters in your family, how does that play into how you think nowadays or does it? What I've found is people often either find a career that links to what something in their family, you know, like you become a cobbler if you're come out of a family of cobblers or you react really strongly against it and go somewhere very different. You spoke very highly about kind of what was in your family and there's a lot of it in the reporting area. Does that create any echoes in your career at this point? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just because I didn't want to become a journalist, you know, doesn't mean I wasn't absolutely following their footsteps in various ways. Really keying into striking imbalances of power and unfairness and throwing oneself in the middle of it and saying, how can we even the scales here? So I saw my parents doing that and 
Colombia and Somalia and Cambodia and Iraq and all kinds of places growing up. And I try to carry that spirit with me. I do a lot of writing in my work, of course. It's, it's, the key is to be able to communicate clearly and persuasively what you're trying to do and why other people should care about it. And um, there's that kind of spirit of, um, you know, resistance to a status quo story that's keeping everyone kind of complacent and quiet. My grandfather famously said, never believe anything unless it has been officially denied. So <laughs> that, that was a motto growing up. So there's a kind of skepticism about what power is saying about what it's doing. And that absolutely is relevant in having a kind of critical perspective on mass incarceration in America, for example. One of the things that's happened to me doing this podcast is I've definitely gotten like another layer of education. I've talked to over 800 people on many different subject areas, and I have found kind of giant amounts of ignorance getting filled in here and there. One of the areas is criminal justice and the problems that we have in this country. It's not just through the podcast. I remember my older daughter was doing a research paper in school, and I looked at the new Jim Grope book that she was reading for that. And I, mean, I interviewed Sam Sinyangwe. I don't know if you know him. He's a data collector in criminal justice and other things. Very early, within the first 10 interviews, I think, on the podcast. And I interviewed Lance and Brandon Kramer, who did a movie called The First Step, which is about the passing of the First Step Act. And it's through the eyes of Van Jones and, and some other activists. Along the way, I've kind of come to understand that we don't just have like, we're tough on crime and we have a lot of people in jail. We have a massive problem at the state level and also to the federal level. What was it when you were in law school that got you interested in this and how did you awaken to this problem? Well, like I said, I, I really root myself in the family tradition of fighting for fairness and justice, really. That's something that is kind of our our brand. And I was really informed it by my grade school, Georgetown Day School, around racial justice, as I mentioned. But when I got to law school, I can remember right at the beginning of our course on criminal justice, Professor Dershowitz had us look at a case from the first newspaper articles all the way to the Supreme Court case. And the case we looked at is called Nix v. Whiteside. And it's about how, as a lawyer, you're not allowed to what's called suborn perjury, which means encourage your client to tell what you know to be a lie on the stand. So that's a legal principle that got established. But we went right back to the beginning of the case and said, how did we get there? We're sort of tracking how, how facts become laws and so on. And the case was as I recall, from Iowa in the late 70s, I think it's Mr. Whiteside. You know, sometimes you get confused, like who, who's, 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 the, who's the defendant in the case and who's representing the state. But I think it's Mr. Whiteside goes to buy drugs and he's black. He goes to buy drugs from someone else and then he ends up shooting the guy at his house. And he claimed later that the guy, he thought he saw this guy re reaching for his gun. 
And the perjury bit is that they decided that that was a lie that he had fabricated in order to claim that it was self-defense. But that was less interesting to me than the fact that we have these two guys. And in the newspaper accounts, they don't even list their first names. We have the last name of the guy who shot and the last name of the guy who was shot. They're clearly in this kind of situation of a drug deal gone wrong and the poverty and the structures around that. And I felt really angry about how that story got told and how all of the realities of those men's lives got completely and aggressively stripped out in order to make a nice, tidy Supreme Court case. So there was something about that. What did the Supreme Court decide that was important in that matter? They decided that the lawyer, that you can't have your, encourage your client to tell a lie on the stand. So it wasn't actually about the case. It was about the way that the guy had come up with a self-defense excuse and they decided, and the lawyer put it on the stand and then the court claimed, you know, the other side claimed that, that he knew that that was a lie. So the, the basic reality of their situation was completely sidelined for this kind of neat principle of the law. It felt to me like here's this huge issue of poverty and race in America and the drug war and all of these things that really matter. And they're just kind of shoved aside so that the court can come to a tidy conclusion on a particular point of interest. Maybe this is a really nerdy legal person thing to say, but it may be angry and caused me to sort of go further into it and say, what what's really going on here? What is the context for what's happening here? And then, you know, once you start to learn about the millions and millions and millions of people who are cycling through jails and prisons every year and how phenomenally racially unjust and unfair it is and thousands of stories of horrifying outcomes, um, extremely unfair convictions and people held inside for decades in solitary confinement. You don't look back after that. Yeah. I've also talked to some people who've gone through that system and then gone on to be political entrepreneurs and trying to fight it. And you can see one, how rare they are in their talents to do that, to overcome whatever got them in, but also just really touch, touches me when I talk to somebody who, who has transformed themselves in that way and tried to uh, remedy the system that got them at, at one point in their life. One of the most transformative experiences that people have that get them into this work um, is a personal experience of going through it or having someone close to them go through it or going to visit a prison and talking to usually guys and saying, oh my God, you know, these are human beings, obviously, but apparently it's not obvious to people until they feel they're right there and they they feel it and they see it. So much talent locked up in here in this maze-like bureaucracy where we have stories like, you know, Willie Simmons is a guy who spent 40 years in an Alabama prison for stealing $9. And you think, what are we? doing. This is absolutely wild. So some of those really talented folks come out and end up and leading in this work, which is really crucial. We all see it very abstractly, 40 years in a prison, some guy, but then if it's someone you know, or it's you, and that's 40, you know, that's like half of your life or more. I mean, the, the tragedy of that and the heartburn of that, and just like thinking about the years ticking by, in some cases for something you did that really was wrong, in some cases maybe not even or over punished. It's, it's a tremendous waste of human life. 
Uh, I'm curious about your time at the ACLU because it's such a key organization in that space. And you're kind of lucky, I think, to get some time there. What, what did you take away from that that you didn't mention already? What did I take away from it? I mean, it's a powerful and important institution. Having infrastructure on the ground in all of these states can be really helpful. You often read news stories where some bad thing has happened and the local ACLU is making a statement. They're engaged. They're involved. Of course, they can't engage in everything, but they really cover a lot of ground. One thing I noticed in my time there is um, the organization continuing to wrestle with, as others have as well, how to work on multiple dimensions of problems at once, litigation being one specific strategy that they do supremely well which is a different kind of practice than advocacy or organizing. After 9-11, the organization grew tremendously. And then with Trump's election, it grew again. Lots of Americans said, where do I send my $20 or whatever it is? And they turned to the ACLU. So that's a big responsibility and challenge to think about how to take on complex problems with a complex set of tools. And I'm glad they're wrestling with it. That jump into philanthropy, you said it was kind of unexpected for you. What was it like to work for open philanthropy? What did you learn there? I learned a lot. If your listeners don't know about open philanthropy, look it up. It is not open society. Different thing. It's based in San Francisco. And the guiding philosophy of the organization is called effective altruism, which you may have talked to folks about on the show. I won't overly characterize it, but the central tenet of effective altruism is to do the most good. And they bring a real rationalist approach to problem solving, to kind of analyze what are we doing? How are we doing it? Did it work? What do we adjust? How do we update our approach based on the information we've gotten about how it's gone? And that in a way seems very obvious and natural, but it is quite different from how many other philanthropies choose to do their work. I wondered going in whether I could work for a foundation, you know, leading with effective altruism. I didn't have a, any kind of view on it. I just thought, is this a place that I can really do my work? And I decided, even though I come from a kind of different culture, social justice culture, so to speak, this central commitment to really rigorously assessing whether what you're doing is actually helping and adjusting to improve really speaks to me. And I've tried to bring that through all of my work. There's also a heavy emphasis on, um, if you want to do the most good, then you want to get the biggest return on investment for your dollar. Really drives you to look for unusual opportunities that people might not have paid attention to otherwise, to look for leaders and overlook strategies and so on that, that other people aren't really going for. So it opens up a lot of possibilities for creativity and fun. <laughs> I mean, it, it's really an entrepreneurial mindset to philanthropy, right? Absolutely. What do you think is strong about that? And are there things that are weaknesses that you observed? Well, I'll say that open philanthropy or open fill, as we call it, always impressed me by how not strident they were. They're really principled, but they're really smart and always adapting their thinking to match reality rather than sort of following sort of some orthodoxy about how to do things. That said, I think that a rationalist approach can drive one to think in a very linear fashion or to try to pick 
very specific things that are fantastic and advance them without having a model for how to do a more complex or you might say ecological approach to the funding. In part, because the more complexity you add in, the more pieces you add in, the harder it becomes to model whether your dollars had a particular effect. I don't think that stops them from doing interesting multi-part things, but there's a kind of way in which you might end up driving more towards, let's pick this and that and the other fantastic entrepreneur they are going to have a big impact, which I think is a great way to go. I am just driven to try to knit those pieces together and just say, okay, here's a you know political strategy over here and a personal transformation strategy over here and a narrative strategy over here. How could these pieces and these people leading these pieces of work really collaborate in sophisticated ways so that you hopefully get outsized effects from that. There was a lot of room for me to do that at OpenPhil, so obviously it's not contrary to how they do things, but I think that's a little bit of a difference from a, the most basic way you can imagine kind of rationalism working. I guess sometimes the graph of what you're trying to impact in the world can be very flat for a very long time and then take a giant leap disc continuously almost upward, right? You have to build and build and build and you can't see anything changing until they talk about the political opportunity structure, changing it and making an opening for this big jump. And, and I think it's hard if you're looking at impact, not to pick things that are giving you feedback along the way that you're making progress, which is a good thing to have, but it might not be the thing that creates the giant move. It depends a lot on the theory behind it and what you think you're doing. Is that something that you thought about or what was thought about there? I've certainly thought about it. I think that um, there are often ways to figure out if you're on track, so to speak. Signals you might look for to see whether what you're trying to do might actually happen, even if it's going to take five years or something like that. For example, you're trying to close a jail in a city and the mayor's position on that is going to be important. And so in the first year, they don't close the jail, but they do get five meetings with the mayor who seems really positive on that direction. That might update you to say, this look, this is looking good. Like we're, we're getting some feedback here that's suggesting that a key component we think is really important is going our way. Now, you, then you might find out that the mayor says that to everyone and their word means nothing. Um, and then you think, okay, we're not only going to pay attention to that piece of information. It's not helping to update us, but are there other signals? That's, I imagine, a sort of better way to think about metrics. The point of metrics is to give you relevant information to update your view on whether something's going to happen. If it's not relevant to whether something's going to happen, you know, you don't need to measure it or kind of worry about it. In terms of building up and to make the big jump, there are different levels of which we can look for signals. You could say, if my approach is the type of approach that's going to work, we should see it playing out this way in this, let's say you did a grant in a, a particularly small city where the cycle moves faster and it's less complex, there's less moving parts. If we're right, this is what we should see. And if you do see that in, in the expected period of time, that lends credibility to the rest of the theory also being correct. So there's different ways to kind of check and reinforce or reconsider your thinking. The last thing I'd say on that is in any portfolio, you can have 
things that are operating on different timelines. So if everything is going to have to wait 10 years with no update signals whatsoever, the goal better be truly significantly important to make it worth that while, and some of them are. But in a more kind of regular kind of work, like the work around mass incarceration, there are things that could happen or not happen or pay off or not pay off in the short term. And that then bolsters the work or gives you more room to take longer term bets, if that makes sense. How big is open philanthropy? Like what kind of budget is it using in a year and and how many people work there approximately? I'm kind of fuzzy on this because I I left at the end of last year and I didn't have an accurate count. Give or take 60 people, maybe. And amount of money given away is some hundreds of millions of dollars a year. They're very into transparency, so it should really be on the website. (laughs) There'll be a blog post. Is the open in the name refer to sharing the information about what they're doing or what does that refer to? Yes, absolutely. Sharing information, particularly if you look into the sort of early posts about open philanthropy, there's a lot of critical self-reflection, mistakes we've made, exactly how we thought about the process. Early, when I first started, our grant write-ups would go on the website, which no one else was doing. That's very time-consuming. So at a certain point, you feel like there's a trade-off where it's not actually worth doing that forever, but that's definitely the foundation of the organization. It's really thinking about how do we um, learn and be rigorous and be honest with ourselves and others and share what we know. You mentioned that this is associated with Dustin Moskowitz. Are there other funders also, or is this basically his family thing? There are other funders that partner with Open Philanthropy. It's not the Dustin Moskowitz Foundation. It's Open Philanthropy, and they're the main partners. But so Holden Karnofsky, who for many years was a sole director, he's now the co-director, has done some good podcasts, including with Ezra Klein and others. So he's the right source to look at to find out everything you want to know about Open Phil. (laughs) What did you think about the leadership there? Do you think they're on the right track, strong people? or I mean, it sounds like they, they helped fund what you're what you're launching or have launched yourself, but what's, what's your thoughts about how the direction of that from now the outside a little bit? Well, they think I'm smart, so they must be geniuses, right? Exactly. Uh, (laughs) They are really smart and really humane and really thoughtful people and trying to figure out how to deploy truly enormous resources to make the world better. I really respect the mission and the approach that they take. And some of the matters they work on seem less obvious to people as a good idea. And some seem more obvious. And sometimes it changes. 2020 was a banner year for their investments. They have a whole portfolio on risks around biosecurity and global pandemics. And so they were able to move money very quickly. A lot of the grants that they had made before became super relevant in obvious ways. And then also, of course, 2020, a huge year for racial justice. So the funding that we had been doing, which really puts racial justice at the core, showed up well, I think, because um, they put, I don't have an exact tally, but the commitments from Open Philanthropy to, to this criminal justice work are counting the money forward that they've put into the fund that I'm now running. It's something like approaching $200 million dollars. It's a lot of money to put towards this topic that's obviously of deep national significance these days. Tell me about the kind of founding story for Just Impact Advisors or your thing. 
you know, right when I began with Open Philanthropy in 2015, from the beginning, I started to meet other donors in the Bay Area. Uh, I live in New York, but I would commute once a month and go spend time there, meet with people, talk with them. And there was a kind of opening of interest in this area. And I was right place at the right time. So I ended up getting to know a number of extremely high net worth donors who are interested in this topic, began advising them or supporting them in various ways, informally, but sometimes with a lot of time and really supporting them to fund what they connected with that was also part of a larger strategy. Instead of what so often happens is people fund what moves them or maybe they do deep due diligence and and it looks like a really smartly run organization and so forth, but that doesn't mean it's one of the key pillars in a dynamic and effective strategy overall. So that's something that I am always trying to build and iterate and evolve and then help donors find their place in if they would like. So I've been doing that for seven years. And when I spun out of Open Philanthropy at the beginning of this year, that was really kind of formalizing that to say, okay, we're just impact advisors. We advise donors on prison work and and other topics. And we try to provide education and information that's useful to people. And we give away the money. So it's been a kind of seamless transition in a way at a really interesting time in philanthropy. Again, not a field that I aimed to go into, but as I'm sure you've heard before or aware of, there's this vast transfer of wealth happening right now. A lot of younger people coming up who stand to inherit billions of dollars and are bringing new values and ideas to how that money should be spent. There's new structures being created around how to move money efficiently and effectively and to meet the crises of our time and so on. It's very dynamic and it's sort of interesting place to be. So it's exciting to move outside of the foundation and be really standing on our own feet working on that. I'll also say, though, it was only possible in the run-up because Open Philanthropy really supported my interest in working with donors over these past many years. It's a very generous institution, I'd say, wanting to share its information, its staff time, whatever might be helpful to the wider world and particularly other funders as they try to make good decisions about how to do things. It's the opposite of ego-driven, stamp your name on the building kind of work. It strikes me a lot of employers try to hold their employees tight and find ways to keep them, even if they have a project like you have, rather than help them move on in a certain way, they want to, you know, retain them for the the enterprise that they care about. Sounds almost too good to be true here that they would fund it. Do you think they think of it as a continuation of what they already wanted to do? Or how, how do you think they're thinking about what you're up to? It feels a little speculative to me because I haven't asked them that question recently. So, but I'll say, you know, they invested a lot in this program area and in my leadership over it and um, said, you know, time to fly. Let's let's spin you out and set you up and give me the freedom and the responsibility to continue to oversee these resources and to welcome in additional donor partners into the effort. Did they push that or did you push it? It was mutual. It was time. What do you think it affords you different to be outside of that umbrella, creating your own 
different brand, different group? Like, wh- why is that important? Um, well, for one thing, other donors don't tend to be the most excited about doing what they feel like is giving money to a billionaire. Like, they have so much money, why would I give them more? Even if the program area has this real kind of budget limit, um, that's not what it necessarily feels like. So being separate makes it clear, this is the money we've got. You can add more. That would be great. We could do more impressive and awesome and things to make the world more fair and just and tackle poverty and mass incarceration all at the same time. So that is one obvious thing. It also allows us to you know, not try to continually reconcile some of the frictions that people might perceive between, for example, effective altruism as a philosophy and approach and social justice work. I think internally it did not feel like friction, but sometimes, you know, if you're part of a wider uh, kind of community, you have to think about how are you demonstrating consistency in your priorities and values. I think open philanthropy now can be sort of extra focused on doing things that are the most outsized impacts you could possibly imagine. Personally, I think that working on justice reform in the U.S., is one of the most impactful things one could do because so much tracks back to it. It's about, in a way, the kind of core wound of this country. Well, there's two core wounds. There's slavery and indigenous genocide, right? And mass incarceration, as Brian Stevenson has so compellingly kind of documented, really springs from that, from slavery to mass incarceration. It's a whole theme of the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, which everyone should visit at some time or other. It's It's stunning. He also has a TED Talk and other things. So when you're talking about prison, you're talking about the legacy of slavery in America. And so much, as you are well aware, of our politics and the political economy of this country and the way our society is structured tracks back to that. And if we want to move forward as a country, we have to address these things. And how America moves forward as a country has a lot of implications for the world, whether you're talking about global aid or foreign policy or whatever. So I see very significant outsized impacts on a global scale of turning the U.S. onto a different course on this issue. So to me, it doesn't seem to be so out of line with the other types of concerns that effective altruists might have. That said, I don't have you know a graduate degree in statistics that I might need to extremely rigorously make that case. So I'm happy to, to go out on my own and, and very grateful to receive the grant that we did receive to kind of create the core of the fund that we're running. You mentioned that you start to socialize with very high net worth individuals in the Bay Area. Who are we talking about? Um, and how are I'm, you doing in bringing them into this? I don't particularly love sharing people's names with audiences I can't see, but I'll just say, you know, um, uh, there are a number of people in the Bay, particularly often women leaders, but certainly not exclusively, who are really smart and really concerned about the direction the country is going and how people are being left behind and so on. I've had a chance to meet and work with many of them to put their dollars to work on this. So it's, it's, a, it's a good collection. It's a high concentration of people with an absolutely ex- enormous amount of money, as you know, and people who are perhaps oriented towards change making and transformation, um, which is perhaps a bit different than, say, 
East Coast money might be more averse to social change interventions. That's an extremely broad statement, but you know. Does that mean women associated with like Amazon and Apple uh, that are big in philanthropy? That's what I hear when when you gave your not that vague <laughs> description of, of who you're talking about. But I, I'm sure that the pool is larger than that. The pool is larger, but you know, tech is obviously at the center of this. Um, and then there are a number of people, you know, um, you mentioned Amazon. So Mackenzie Scott has uh, shared a number of her grants, um, which include some of the organizations that we think are really exceptional and amazing. And we're excited that her team ended up giving money to those things. But yeah, there's a number, there's a number of exciting donors of that caliber. I mean, the Amazon caliber is stratospheric, but of major caliber who are working on this. Someone else whose name I can share is Nicole Shanahan uh, with the Bia Echo Foundation. She has put a considerable amount of resources into both starting from a couple of years ago into what we might call criminal justice stuff, and then really transitioning over time more into what we call restorative justice transformative justice and also land work that really connects those climate soil work, regenerative agriculture and all of that has a lot of deep thematic connections with what are we saying is the alternative to prison. It's healing, it's relational and so on. And often it's the same people and organizations holding those two pieces of work. So in collaborating with Nicole, I've been able to um, help direct resources to things like Life Comes From It, which is a fund for restorative, transformative, and indigenous peacemaking work. So that's pretty exciting and very heartening. You know, most of my days are spent in grim stories about, you know, women being pulled from their children on the last visit because parental rights are terminated when you're incarcerated for more than 18 months, or politics, day-to-day electoral work. But to get to spend some time in these future solutions spaces where you can see how innovative and creative people are being and creating alternatives on the ground. And you could actually envision the world turning in that direction. That's very exciting. You mentioned a number of areas that you're working in. First one was advising donors. Do you find that you are hunting down donors to try to give them advice or are they coming to you for advice? What stage are you in sort of in building a practice in that particular area? Um, Donors tend to find me in part because I put information out there and have tried to develop a, um, I don't know, brand for myself as person who knows a lot about this topic and seems to have a strategy. And so word gets around and I'll get outreach from someone saying, so-and-so asked if I, if I could introduce them to you, would you like to talk to them and so on. So people find me, I'm not really in the business of trying to persuade people to care about this issue and put a lot of money into it if they are currently disinterested in it. Though I do think that a lot of people who care about, say, poverty or women, just to take two examples, would do well to give a portion of their giving in this area because the thing that's messing up a lot of their work in those arenas is this. The reason the woman is not climbing out of poverty is because she's paying extravagant fees to speak to her partner or to send things to the commissary or pay legal fees. It's a real drag on a lot of sectors of society and is not just about the particular people who are cycling through jail and prison themselves. It really affects their whole families and communities. So 
I think more people should pay attention to this. But in my day to day, I'm responding to people who are coming to me because they're just have read books, read, uh, seen movies. One donor described how she ended up at a class in prison of where people had taken a class on writing and were sharing what they had written. She, a friend took her and she went in and heard these stories and thought, oh my God, I can't believe these people are buried in here. I have to work on this. And so those people tend to try to find me. And I'm always interested in, you know, connecting with those types of folks and seeing what I can do to be helpful. I think I would be challenged by the size of a conversation with someone who has a billion dollars or, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Just, it seems like there's high stakes. These people are inundated in general with requests for their funds. I've heard them, people referred to as like masters of the universe. They're, they're, you know, they're just in a different reality than the rest of us, uh, to some degree. How have you come to feel comfortable in those rooms and making a case to people like that? I mean, it's sort of trite to say, but people are people, even if they have very different daily life experiences. And um, the people I've interacted with really give a damn about the world and know that their resources can make a huge difference. And that it is what is an overwhelming task, I think, for many of them to say, well, how do I find the right things and the right people? Everyone's trying to get to me. So it really becomes a matter of chains of trusted relationships, I guess I'd say. If they have someone close to them they've known for a while, who knows someone who knows someone who might say, Chloe knows what she's talking about, that might feel comfortable rather than an unsolicited email or someone bouncing up to you at a party or an event or something like that. So I think people with vast resources who are paying attention to any of this stuff are eager to find great ways to give money away. And it is it is a challenge, though, as you were alluding to. But once we're in the conversation, we're just talking about, you know, how to have an impact. I'm addressing questions around how the justice system works. You know, what are the technical components that have gotten us here, the laws and policies? What are the social drivers being matters like homelessness or mental health issues or other matters that will drive people into the system. And then the political history here, which I was alluding to, of course, with Brian Stevenson, but it's so striking when you learn about it. People get really caught up in the U.S. around criminal law as if, you know, what we're talking about is whether it's okay for someone to like steal your purse. And no one is arguing it's okay for someone to steal your purse. The question is, what can we do that's effective to make that happen less? And it turns out that prison and jail are the most expensive, least effective ways to do that if you actually want to solve the problem. And so you might say, well, that seems wild. If it works so poorly, why do we have so much of it? And that goes back to the fact that it's a political strategy. Nixon, the war on drugs, you know, and I could go into that more. And so when we're talking to donors about these different kinds of components, I find that people are really eager to learn, take a lot of notes, they're very curious, want to engage. And then the challenge is just figuring out what's the capacity for any human being to say, okay, okay, it's enough information. That's enough analysis and strategy. I get it. And now I'm ready to make some decisions. There are vested interests in the status quo. There are 
conservative people that think that they're sort of the tough on crime political play and belief, you know, that that's out there. Although this made some odd bedfellows, this particular issue. Who are your biggest challenges in society that end up taking the other side of this and stopping the kinds of reforms or changes that you'd like to see happen? Who, who are you running up against and how is the balance of power there these days? Great question. So when I started, we did a lot of work to, and by started, I mean, I'll sort of call it 2012 when I was starting at the ACLU. We're doing a lot of work to show that this wasn't a Republican Democrat issue. That is to say, it wasn't it was an issue that was polarizing in that sense, because um, going into state legislatures, you had both Republicans and Democrats saying, "This is extreme. It's unfair. It's wasteful. We need to spend those resources elsewhere." And the opponents, the people who would stop the bill that had the powerful Republican champion in, say, a state like Alabama or California, for that matter, or wherever Virginia, the opponent would be a former prosecutor or the current prosecutors association or the sheriff's association. Those bodies that are often far more extreme than the everyday prosecutor or sheriff or police officer, the associations, we've heard a bunch about police unions the past couple of years. There's a number of different law enforcement associations that are similarly, I'd say out of step sometimes with their membership Anyways, those are the ones who are saying, no, no, you can't make this change. The sky will fall. You know, uh, blood will run in the streets with no evidence as a basis. But they were very effective for a very long time. It's scaring off anyone who wanted to change anything. But that has started to shift. Um, it's been shifting the past, let's say, you know, seven years. I think we've seen a different kind of politics emerging out of that. And I can fill in some of the middle. But where we're at now is that you have... Those types of associations, not just using their um, voices and to say this, this, this would be terrible or this person shouldn't be elected, but putting millions and millions of dollars in and losing badly. This just happened in Chicago. Various police unions backed challenges to a number of candidates and lost badly. They tried to defeat you know, Gascon when he was running for office as district attorney of Los Angeles. They really lost badly. And then the recall failed. In Philadelphia, there are many stories of this. So the the type of bite that used to follow the bark of these institutions who had a strong vested economic and political interest in keeping things as they are is not working the way that it used to. That doesn't mean it's never effective. It's, it certainly can be. And the politics have shifted again recently, as, as I'm sure you're aware. But it's really a far cry from how things were, let's say, 10 years ago were the opponents of change who were the kind of administrators of the current system or the beneficiaries, many beneficiaries of it were able to just shoot anything down and that's not happening the same way. I'll also mention though too, I, I have to be clear on this, that it's not that uniformly people who work in these systems are against change. You have many departments of correction leaders or police chiefs, a number of different types of players who heartily agree that the current arrangements are ridiculous. You, you can go to a prison warden and say, how many people would you feel comfortable just letting out of your prison right now because they're no danger to anyone and should go home to their families? And they would give you a large number. People know. 
But politically, when it comes to a piece of legislation or an election, those bodies that I mentioned can be quite powerful. So if, if I wanted to understand your strategy for making change, a large change in this area that you're focused on, how would you characterize it? Okay, so there's a kind of strategic framework I work within that I mentioned before called movement ecology. And I wrote a little about it. There's a simple article from a few years ago in the Stanford Social Innovation Review with a nice little pie graph. So you can see how it works with those five components around inside game, structure-based organizing, mass mobilization, alternatives, and personal transformation and how those things work together. That framework can be applied to anything, any issue one might want to work on. So that's not itself a strategy, but it, it helps to organize the strategy because one of the questions when looking at that type of framework is to say, okay, where are we strong? Where are we weak? And what is most important to develop next? Coming in to this philanthropic role in 2015, it seemed to me that we had some decent inside game work going on, though there could be more, litigation, policy, a lot of good research and reports, sentencing project out there for years, publishing fantastic data and reports, prison policy initiative, another great organization. We had a lot of that kind of stuff that you would want to bring to the attention of a governor or whatever, and to say, let's make this change. What we didn't have was any kind of robust outside game. There was no large swath of voters uniting together to say, we think things should go a different way on this. There were many people who had that opinion, but they were not organized. So a first key priority of this strategy is to provide resources for people to organize their voices in these local communities, in cities and in states around the country, whether they be people from certain neighborhoods, people who are crime survivors who want to see things go a different way, formerly incarcerated leaders like in Florida with Desmond Mead and the, the Voting Rights Restoration Amendment. All of these things were kind of latent possibilities, but needed resources in order to grow. So that's one key component. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, I could talk for 10 hours about this, but another key component of the strategy is really about, and I think you kind of mentioned this before, but opening more political space to act. In Europe, in Portugal, as you probably know, they decriminalized all drugs, all drugs, including cocaine, heroin, all of the drugs more than 10 years ago as a public health response to the overdose crisis. And it worked. Their overdoses have dropped by over 90%. How did this come to be? Was it a mass movement? No. In Europe, to paint it with a broad brush, they seem to do things much more based on facts and data. The evidence comes forward. Everyone considers it and says, yes, as a public health matter, we should do this thing. I'm sure I'm oversimplifying and people could come up with great counterexamples. But as compared to the US, I think that's fair to say. So why doesn't that happen here? I mean, one could go into a lot of political history, but it's that the facts and the data do not rule the day, as you know, in part because there's all of these other political considerations. You're talking to a governor, you talk to a president, and they say, you know what? I agree with you. I'd love to help. I just can't. I just can't because I'm running for office. I mean, our DAs are elected. District attorneys are elected in the U.S. That's crazy compared to the rest of the world. No one does that. So everyone's always thinking judges run for office. Everyone's thinking about running for office. So they can't kind of follow any kind of sensible, sane policy. So 
I say all that because the part of the strategy is to open more space, political space, for people to implement those sensible solutions, which is going to involve building a certain amount of political power in order to counter the types of bodies that I mentioned before. We need room for people to be reasonable here, um, which has not been happening. It used to be, if you did the right thing, you were going to lose your election. If you did the wrong thing, you were going to win your election, right and wrong from my perspective. Now, you know, could go the other way. It doesn't always go the other way, but people can win elections based on supporting criminal justice reform and lose elections based on being terrible on it. And we've seen that in DA races and also other types of races. Like in Los Angeles this year, there was a ton of races where criminal justice has been a big issue. And many very progressive candidates on this topic came out on top for judge, for county board commissioner, city council, and so on. One of the things that seems to have cycled through the political system over the last few years is that, you know, defund the police slogan and the reaction to it and maybe conventional wisdom that it was a harmful slogan to Democrats and that, and that we took a lot of damage around it. What's your take on that area? of proposal for reform and how we make the case successfully versus maybe less successfully? Or what's your take on that general area? Well, there's a lot of questions baked in there, including a dispute that I'm not going to weigh in on because I just don't know enough about what was the actual electoral effect of people repeating on Fox News to defund the police all the time. And I say Fox News advisedly. It's not like Democratic candidates are saying defund the police. Maybe Cory Bush. I'm not sure. But that's not a common thing for people to say. It never was. But the fact that Fox repeated it incessantly, did that lose people their elections or were there other factors? I've seen lots of arguments both directions. But on the substance, my experience of the Ferguson uprising, then followed later by what happened in Minneapolis and George Floyd is that millions and millions of Americans know that there's something deeply wrong going on here and deeply unfair and brutal. And I think people may have the sense that in 30 or 50 years, they're going to look back and be really ashamed that they lived in a time when this was happening. In terms of over-policing of Black people, in terms of millions of people cycling through incarceration and being split from their families and so on, it's shameful stuff particularly when you know the stories of, you know, this person's in for 50 years for stealing $9. I mean, it looks pretty bad. We have more people incarcerated now as a percentage of population than there were Black people incarcerated in in South Africa during apartheid. It's bad stuff. So a kind of rallying cry of defund the police that really speaks to the, the need for some big intervention here to change things because the way things are is really not good. I think was very clarifying for many people, brought a lot of things to the public's attention. People are asking more questions now about whether police should handle every problem under the sun, from mental health to homelessness to drug addiction to traffic. And a lot of solutions have come out of that. It also makes for difficult electoral politics, and I wouldn't advise someone to run on the phrase. Did a lot of good come from 25 million people marching in the streets in 2020 to say there's something really big and wrong here in a big way? Yes, a lot of good has come from that. You said you're running a fund, which means, I assume, you have a pot of money and you're selecting organizations to, f- to 
give money to that are entrepreneurial in that area? How do you decide who gets the money? What's the methodology? I'm going to answer that, but I realize there's something more to say on the last topic. I know a lot of number of Democrats are trying to figure out, well, what should should they say? They feel kind of stuck because they want to fend off Republican attacks, but also hopefully don't want to alienate voters and volunteers. And there's been some interesting research lately done by a group working with the DCCC, finding that all of these messages work pretty well. Fully fund public safety. The police can't do it alone. We know what keeps us safe. Accountability for everyone, including the police. So it's not just this dialectic between we love police, we hate police. It's like, no, we, you know, people recognize that there's something wrong going on and they want to be safe and they're looking for solutions. So I just want to make the point that there's effective ways to talk about it that are getting past some of what we've been talking about for the past couple of years. Makes sense. Tell me about your fund and how you're operating it. So how do we choose who gets money? The main focus really is on entrepreneurship in a way. I wouldn't normally use that phrasing, but since I'm on your show, I will. Looking for new things or new directions that people are taking that could prove to be some pretty exciting and effective ways to do things that can add to the existing ecosystem or fill gaps. And we have the freedom to properly launch organizations if that's what they need. So not just giving a 50 or 75,000 or $100,000 grant, but maybe starting with 150. And if it's looking really strong, half a million. And if it's looking really, really strong, falling with a million dollars. Now, I have a limited amount of money. I'm trying to raise more. The more money I raise, the more I can uh, support that kind of innovation. But I can't, at this point, do that in too many cases. But I'm looking around for people who are really sharp strategists with an interesting way in. And I'm analyzing that from the perspective of the sort of meta strategy that I have going in my analysis of how power and society can shift on this issue. I'll give you an example of something I haven't found yet um, that I would be delighted to find, but I've always kept my eye out for. Um, Someone organizing children of incarcerated parents. There's millions of kids growing up over time with incarcerated parents. Some are quite young, some are older, obviously. And they're distributed all over society, doing all different kinds of things. And I've always thought that if we could hear a kind of powerful, resonant, unified voice of children with incarcerated parents, that that could really catch the public's imagination in a kind of new way. Back to the Children's March, even, and these types of, you know, in the U.S. and other places, movements of history where younger people make a claim on something, it can, it can, it can be noticed. I've yet to find someone who I think is squarely doing that in a scaled way. We've done a couple of grants in that kind of arena, um, but nothing that is really ready to kind of, you know, go big on that. And if I find them, I will very quickly give them money. Um, So it's a lot of how I kind of look around. I really wish I could find something like this. I am not in the business of, however, designing some elaborate institution and then trying to hire someone to run it. That's not my thing. And I'm not in the business of giving money in an ongoing way to good organizations that everyone agrees are good. I might say good things about them and try to help them raise money for others, but I'm really trying to reserve our capital for launching things and then seeing it through because sometimes it takes years for other money to catch up. So you can't just give it a nudge out the door and then walk away. You have to really, if you believe in it, stick with it. 
why that bias to the new? Like, does that make sense? It is so much effort to start a new institution. I, I mean, I'm very attracted to it myself, but I could imagine people making the argument that a tried and true, useful, already functioning, already staffed institution doing good things is a better use of money. Why do you have that bias to the new? To be clear, I don't think everyone should do it the way I'm doing it. There are certainly established institutions that I am encourage other people to give lots and lots of money to. Take an organization like Recidiviz. It's not that old, but it's several years in. It's a multi-million dollar organization. I think they're fantastic. I've never funded them because they do. They have a kind of tech and data approach uh, that I think is going to do fine achieving money from other sources, and they have, although always looking for more. Give money to Recidiviz. But so I'm really looking at where can we add the most value coming out of that effective altruism kind of commitment to trying to do the most good. Because I am an expert in this issue, I have hundreds and hundreds of relationships, and I think about and obsess about this topic all day long. I am positioned to recognize things earlier than someone else who's not full-time or not you know, as expert as I am on this topic. So my best use is to focus on the things that perhaps only I am going to recognize versus a more established organization, take Drug Policy Alliance, for example. I think they're fantastic. It doesn't take someone with tons of experience and knowledge to recognize that the Drug Policy Alliance, which is well-established and has done a lot of good, is a great place to give money. And so that's perhaps a better fit for donors who have less time or capacity to kind of get really sensitively into the weeds. So that's just my biases because that's where I can, I can contribute a lot, I think. You said an area where you think there's a gap that you would love to fund. What is something that you have funded that you're really excited about? I'm proud of a lot of our grants, but I think it really has come together in Los Angeles, which is a strangely neglected town. It might be hard to believe because it is, I mean, LA is the city, but of course the county of Los Angeles has 10 million people, by far the largest county in America. It's bigger than Michigan. It's huge. It's a big deal. But people tend to like not pay attention to it. They think either it's already got a lot of money, so it must be taken care of. It's not a battleground state. It's not a battleground jurisdiction of any kind. Um, or people just assume it's all Hollywood. They kind of, their eyes skip over LA, which I think is a mistake. It's a sophisticated, complex place with a lot of problems and a lot of really talented people working on them. So we came in in 2017 when I was still at Open Philanthropy and funded what's called the Justice LA Coalition, whose goal was to try to stop this $3 billion jail from being built, and they succeeded. So I'll just give you the punchline there. It worked, but they had been trying to do this for 10 years and had lost a really important county board vote. But then when we kind of put a million dollars in and raised other money, they were able to have fully paid staffed organizers, better media, better kind of presentation, matching t-shirts, all the stuff that makes things look kind of impressive and compelling on TV. They were able to cause the county board of commissioners to change course, to cancel the multi-billion dollar contract, to also choose not to build this women's jail they were going to build far outside town where no one could visit their moms and do a bunch of other things beside, create this whole alternatives to incarceration framework, wrote a long report on it. It's It's got commitment from the county. They're implementing it. What's exciting about what's going on there to me is it's multiple components coming together around organizing, advocacy, 
political work. A lot of the people there were involved in the Gascon DA race and other important races, as well as that implementation work around how will the budget be allocated to satisfy these goals and these needs. They passed a measure called Measure J that requires the county to spend at least 10% of its discretionary budget on non-jail and police solutions to problems like homelessness. They call it care first. So that's huge. That's a lot of money, 10%. If they can get it fully implemented and allocated, that will increase the budget for things like building housing and supportive health services by about half a billion dollars a year. So that's an incredible return on the investment of backing the leaders that we've worked with on Los Angeles and and very, very exciting. And it's been multi-year work, but it's also delivered a sort of cascade of wins and has shown, I think, the value of laying in resources to multiple key leaders in a place who are already in deep relationship with each other, who are working from different angles. Like one of the folks is just ran for and won a seat on the city council so they can really tackle the issue from the inside and outside at the same time. I must have really pissed off a bunch of people who are planning to profit from building the prison. <laughs> right? That's a lot of money to not to suddenly see go away. Do you see any political reaction with interested parties trying to undo that decision and take it back the other direction? Or is it a done thing for a while? My best understanding is completely a done deal. I mean, they've literally, the place that was supposed to be the parking lot now has a supportive housing structure on it called a Care First Village. But you make a good point around the labor interests in these big construction projects, the trades, the building and trades. They want to see, you know, big contracts to build big things, but they're not particularly invested in building jails. I think they'd rather not build a jail, actually, if you polled people. They want to build anything that's going to, you know. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily thinking about labor, though. It, I, I see why that they would be involved, but I was thinking about contractors and it's not a private prison, right? It was a public prison. Yeah, but again, the company, you're getting a little bit beyond what, what I know of the details of this deal. You know, sometimes you'll have in other places, at least a private prison company is brought in to administer a public facility. So they're making money of it. Other times they are literally building it and leasing it out. There's all kinds of arrangements. In Los Angeles, the most of the people concerned about where the money, you know, whether this was going to be built or not, my understanding is would be perfectly happy for something else to be built. Let's build mental health facility, uh, local community mental health centers instead. Fantastic. The electricians are happy. The carpenters are happy and so on. I mean, I, I don't know why I went down that line of questioning. I mean, I think it does sound like quite an important triumph. And I'm, I'm glad that you guys were able to intervene in that way. You know, of course, we want to protect our hearts. You think, oh, God, that sounds really great. Is it, is it going to go away? You know, it's a natural kind of question. Or, to ask. Or, or what, you know, what are the, because what I see over and over is the direction that we go in is so not linear and we go forward and we go back and nothing is ever fully settled as we've seen with bro. Right. For example, I mean, like you don't, you don't necessarily solve something forever when you solve something in politics, unfortunately. That's true. I have to bring up this, this Gallup poll, because I think it really bears on what you're saying in terms of that back and forth one might see. 
There is a Gallup poll from 2020 on uh, American opinions on whether the criminal justice system is too harsh or not harsh enough. And I was totally blown away by this chart when I saw it. So it's from 1992 to 2020. And one question is, you know, is it not tough enough? There's one sets of data points making a line or too tough. And not tough enough in 1992 was 83% of respondents. And in 2020, that number was 41%, less than half. And if you could see this line right now, it's nearly a straight line. There's like a slight, you know, bend on one of the years, but it's nearly straight line down. This plummeting of... Do you think that's plummeting because people have observed the actual effects of this incarceration of so many people since the crime bill of 94 or whatever it was. And, or do you think it's because of social movement, activism, education that is indirectly based on, on activists? I mean, do you, do you have a sense of why that line has moved the way it's moved? It's, I could only speculate. I would say that the types of explanations you mentioned don't really match the timeline you would expect a kind of accelerating change if it's about movements or something, or you'd expect um, uh, just something happening in the mid-90s. I don't know. I, I think it's that there was a real fervor kicked off in the 70s and very much promoted by Nixon and then Reagan around crime and criminals and who's committing it and how we think about it. And then America builds an enormous number of prisons and sends lots and lots of people there. So more and more people know someone who's been in or know someone who's been arrested. And it's like, I don't know about this. You know, it just kind of, I think there was probably, I wish they had started this question before 1992. I would be so interested to see this chart from 1950 or something or 1960. So I, I don't know what was going on right before them. You can imagine it being at a high point, right? You know, in the late eighties yeah. and the air coming out of that kind of yeah. manufactured balloon slowly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And very continuously. And then the number of people who say it's too tough has gone from 2% to 21% according to Gallup by 2020. That's, and that's I very interesting. If you play it forward, you know, I think those lines are going to cross sometime pretty soon. Unless, unless we have big crime fear ginned up, which could happen. But I, I've used so much of your time. I just want to ask you one question about the global political environment in the U.S., which is we are so much at risk. I think there's a fair enough amount of consensus that if we allow Trump back, if we allow a Trump-like guy like a DeSantis in, if we allow government by sort of the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, which is now the Republican Party, that there's going to be a lot of movement in the wrong direction on a whole bunch of progressive concerns and fronts. So some people are very focused on just that, like, how do we politically have a coalition to fight that off? Because everything else is going to be so difficult if that's what we have to contend with versus like pick a lane and work and work on it like you are, which is very important, but probably subordinate to if we go down some authoritarian right-wing road for a while. How do you think about where you fit in that environment that we inevitably have right now, unfortunately? You know, I, 
just listened to your conversation with Dimitri Melhorn, who, who I know is living in that uh, reality that you mentioned. You know, I, I'm an issue expert on justice issues, the policy, the the kind of social and political dimensions of it, the history of it, how we change it. And so that is my lane to stick in. I am certainly conscious of and aware of and, and concerned about the larger, the kind of threats that you mentioned. I do not see a conflict between what I'm doing and those threats. Someone could take the other side of that. And we could have a discussion about it. But I don't actually believe in forging ahead, you know, come what may, if if what you're doing also seems to be causing this other really significant harm. I just don't see a conflict between it. And, and I do think that a lot of people have been mobilized and awakened in the past couple of years to this issue and really want to see progress made on it. I don't think that it's a, some kind of used to live in the shadows as this kind of peripheral issue people didn't think very much about. It's also really tied in with other things. You know, if abortion is criminalized, then it kind of matters who the district attorney is, right? Like who's going to enforce that? Will it be enforced? How many police will be on the ground, you know, trying to chase down young girls who may be pregnant? All of those kinds of things are possibilities. They're, they're going to apparently uh, chase down 20 people in Florida and have the governor make a announcement about somebody voting who misunderstood the legalization of felons voting, right? Like you want to be careful about increasing the state apparatus to kind of violently suppress and incarcerate people in particular in these dark times. So it's kind of complex how all these pieces kind of fit together. I'll also say that there is a, a, a big flank of people who have previously been legally or socially disenfranchised from the political process who are more and more developing an interest in it. And that would be people with criminal convictions who are formerly incarcerated, places where they can vote or where they can influence their families to vote. They don't call themselves oftentimes Republicans or Democrats. They're like, well, who's going to address this issue? And it turns out to be a lot of people are in that group. That's showing itself more in certain states. I think we see a lot of that in Louisiana, for example, previously the most incarcerated state in the country. There's a political kind of power developing there that really centers this issue. So it's not so easy as to say, we care about your issue, but the top, top concern is this other thing. Everyone stay quiet while we do this. There's no doing this separate from the rest. You know what I mean? Like taking on Trump and DeSantis on what terms, with what values and principles, with what coalition, it's going to matter what you think and how you talk about justice. All right. That makes a lot of sense to me. Is there anything else that you'd like people to know about what you're up to that you haven't said? I just have to let people know about, because I mentioned Europe, and this is such a nerdy answer to your question, but there's a good Stanford Law Review article, be um, a real zinger, for those interested, called Two Cultures of Punishment, about the culture of punishment in Europe. And he acknowledges, like, you can't, you know, it's kind of a broad brush, but culture of punishment in Europe versus the US. What is the difference? Worth reading. The punchline is, in Europe, if you commit a crime, you did a bad thing. In the US, if you commit a crime, you are a bad person. Kind of simplified. And he suggests that we have very different operating visions of what is the nature of human dignity. Like in Europe, if you're human, you have dignity. Whereas in the US, it seems to be something that you kind of earn and can lose. And there's something about that insight I'm finding really interesting and still chewing on. Because it pertains not just to questions around prison. I mean, it seems to pertain to immigration, women, you know, a lot of different areas where we're trying to get at 
what makes a person count in a certain kind of way and what makes a person worthy of care and so forth. So I think that that's pretty interesting. The the other thing I'll just leave folks with is I'd really, you know, if you haven't kind of um, read <laughs> about how the war on drugs and other criminal justice policies were really put in place as a political strategy under Nixon, it's worth getting your head around that. Dan Baum wrote a Harper's article in 2016 where he referred to a conversation with Ehrlichman, who was Nixon's, who was a policy director, domestic affairs guy. And he said to this journalist, you want to know what the drug war was about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. He said, we couldn't make it illegal to be against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with the marijuana and blacks with heroin, I'm obviously reading this, then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. That's what we're talking about. That's the history here. It's a political strategy. And so on one hand, we want solutions for the day-to-day lived experience for people to feel safe and good in their communities. And we have to tackle this political legacy that's using this kind of racialized system to target certain groups and very effectively so. And I think when we can start to see it as a kind of human rights issue, really, and that unraveling this helps us get at some of the core issues of American politics, we could make a lot more progress. And that's that's what I spend all day doing and raising money for. So thanks for letting me talk about it. Well, thanks for doing what you're doing. It seems like a big one. And I hope that you're very successful and having some impact in this area. Anything else you want to say? It's really fun doing this work and to meet some of the smartest, most fantastic strategists and most interesting people I could ever come up with. So it's good work. And it's also really, it's really enjoyable. If anyone listening to this is interested to learn more and engage more. Um, there's a lot going on here. Oh yes, I have a Substack. You should check it out. It's called justimpact.substack.com. You can see some of my thinking and then through that link to a lot of other great work that's going on. Everyone's got a Substack. I feel a little behind. Where's your Substack? Uh, <laughs> uh, so much more work. <laughs> <laughs> That was Chloe Coburn. Chloe is at justimpactadvisors.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.